This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, Stephanie Butnick, and today we're bringing you one more special episode. International Holocaust Remembrance Day is this Saturday, and so we're devoting this episode to stories of remembrance. We have three segments for you today. First, we're sharing a sneak peek of a new Tablet Studios podcast series called Covering Their Tracks. It tells the story of how, during the Holocaust, the French National Railway was involved in transporting Jews to concentration camps for profit. The series spotlights the efforts of a small group of people to finally get justice. Then, we're featuring a Gentile of the Week. It's been a while since we had one of those on the show, but we thought no one was more deserving than Catherine Heather, a musicologist who studies sonic representations of the Holocaust. And finally, we have another installment of our series, Beautifully Jewish. Tanya Singer and I traveled to the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center to see a very special dress with a very special story behind it. We hope you're as moved by these stories as we are. And we promise we'll be back soon with a regular standard episode of Unorthodox. Hey all, it's producer Josh Cross. We've been working on a new five-episode miniseries called Covering Their Tracks. The series tells the story of the French National Railway's complicity with the Nazis and a decades-long pursuit of justice. The five-part series is helmed by documentarian Matthew Slutsky, and I sat down with him to discuss it. Here's our conversation and a sample of the first episode. Matthew Slutsky, welcome to Unorthodox. Oh my gosh, long-time listener. First time talker. Thank you. So tell us how you got involved with covering their tracks and this story. This has been a story that I've been involved in for over a decade. I lived in Washington, D.C., and I worked for a company called Change.org. And a friend of mine who is a lawyer in D.C. reached out to me and said, hey, I have this case. I have this pro bono case that I'm working on. Is there any way you could help me? And so I helped him with getting an online petition started. That's when I first learned about this case, about Leo about an incredible daring escape from a train headed for Auschwitz. And the case that was at that time underway to try to get justice for some of these victims and survivors. I just remember thinking, um, even the small part that I played, how unbelievably special it was to be involved. So that was over a decade ago. And since then, I've stayed in close touch with Rafi Prober, who was the lawyer who came to me. I do documentary work and, you know, storytelling. And as a documentarian, I've thought about many times, what can we do with this story? Should we do it? Make a film? And during the pandemic, Rafi and I were talking one day and talking about podcasts and decided, you know what? It's time. Let's, let's do something. And that's how this thing came about. And I'm just over the moon and beyond excited that people are going to finally hear it. Obviously, this is a story that has to do with trains and the Nazis and complicity and eventual reparations and victims. What's one of the things that surprised you most about people's involvement in this story? The main protagonist of the story is a guy named Leo Bretholtz. And Leo was a 21-year-old who jumped off a moving train, a French railway train bound for Auschwitz and fled Europe, eventually got to Baltimore where he lived a life. And as you'll hear in the story, he eventually gets involved again. I, as part of this series uh, and as part of my research, I went and met with his family and with his daughter, Edie Norton. And the most surprising thing to me was how little she knew about her father's impact 
on this case. She knew that he had been going to Washington, D.C. to testify. She knew that he was involved with a team of lawyers and whatnot. But when I explained to her the unique role that he had, I mean, literally, I could like she was sort of floored and emotional. And it was at that moment that I realized, you know, when, when you're telling a story like this, you're always thinking, how am I going to end this thing? And I and it was in that moment that that the end became clear, the end of the of the podcast. So listen to the end and you'll hear sort of how that realization came to to be. But that wasn't the most surprising thing, just that that this guy's own family didn't quite understand the gravity. And this is one of the stories whenever I tell someone about that, what we're what we're doing and about the story, they say, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't know that. And so that's, a, to me, a sign of a, of a story that needs to be told. Um, and so my hope is that people will hear this and there'll be a surprise that maybe they didn't know about this story or that they didn't quite understand the French role in World War II. That's my hope is that people will discover it the same way that Leo's own daughter did. If you had to tell a listener something that they might not expect to take away from a historical podcast documentary, what, what do you think you want listeners to take away from this in addition to learning about the story? A big theme of this series is about storytelling and about the tradition of storytelling in the Jewish faith. And it's how we keep memory alive. It's how we process and get through very difficult things. And so I would say like very basic, if you have a family story, and it doesn't have to be Leo's, it doesn't have to be as dramatic, but if you have a story and there's a you know a grandparent or someone in your life that maybe you haven't done the work or made the difficult ask to kind of dig into their story, I'd say do it because first of all, time is limited and we have to collect those stories while we have those people around. But also it's not easy for them to tell their story, but once they do, it can lighten the burden for them quite a bit. And so I would say be brave and go continue the incredible tradition of storytelling that we have in Judaism. And I will add that in several places in this series, we learn about different people not knowing about stories that they find out and wind up feeling better for it. So I, I definitely agree with you there. Tell me a little bit about what we're about to play people, and then we'll give them a taste of covering their tracks. You're going to hear the beginning of episode one, and you're going to meet some of the main characters, and you're going to get a sense of the tone and the feel of the show. It's hopefully going to draw you in and make you want to go listen to all five episodes. I would encourage you to go and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to Covering Their Tracks, and you'll be able to listen to the first couple episodes, and we'll be dropping the rest over the next few weeks. Share it with your friends. If you love it, share it on social media. Tell everyone. The more people that hear this story, the more we've done our jobs, because this is an important story, and it's a story that means so, so much to, um, to me and to the people that were involved. All right, so here now is that taste of episode one of Covering Their Tracks. That's the opening to a film called La Bataille du Rai, or The Battle of the Rails. It was released just after the Nazis' concentration camps were liberated. Now imagine you're France. Your country is in tatters after occupation and collaboration. You have to figure out how you're going to step into the future. Imagine that pressure, that self-consciousness. How is the rest of the world going to look at you? How could they possibly understand what you've been through? What do you want them to see, and what don't you want them to see? 
One way to deal with this question is to make a movie. Make a movie and cast yourself as the hero. And that's exactly what the French did. In the film, all the French railway workers are fighting the German occupation, resisting through all kinds of mechanical and bureaucratic tactics. There's even one scene where they sabotage one of their own trains carrying German weapons. At the end, the French are successful, the Germans are killed, and the trains, well, they never reach their destination. It's a patriotic story that gives France a singular, overwhelmingly positive national identity to rally behind. And in 1947, La Bataille du Rai won two prizes at the Cannes Film Festival. It was a blockbuster hit. The problem is the narrative isn't true. That's lawyer Harriet Taman. Not one single deportation train was ever sabotaged. But you listen to them, they were all, everybody was in the resistance, everybody was fighting. Except somehow while everybody was fighting, 73,000 people were deported to Auschwitz. I'm Matthew Slutsky, and this is Covering Their Tracks, the extraordinary story of the SNCF's denial of its history and how storytelling can be used to confront the past and achieve justice. During World War II, France's state-run railway known as SNCF transported thousands of Jews to their deaths in Nazi prison camps. We have memories that haunt us and will haunt us to our dying day. They were paid per head, per kilometer, to transport people. Human beings. You must try to get off the train so somebody will remember, somebody will tell the story of what happened to us. I'm announcing my administration's efforts to transform travel in America with an historic investment in high-speed rail. SNCF has never accepted moral or financial responsibility for its actions. And until it does so, it should not be permitted to get taxpayer money. 70 years is far too long to wait for a company to accept responsibility for the death and suffering it caused. Those are the voices of Holocaust survivors, newscasters, lawyers, Senator Joe Lieberman, and President Barack Obama. They're all talking about trains, and that's the story that brings us here. Today, the French National Railroad, known as SNCF, exists as a pinnacle of train travel, a Fortune 500 company. During World War II, however, the railway was complicit in the Holocaust, transporting approximately 76,000 French Jews, in addition to countless others, including American POWs, toward Nazi concentration camps around Europe. Over the next five episodes, you'll hear about the clash of business, law, government, corporate and moral accountability, and of a diplomatic crisis that would go to the highest levels of the U.S. and French governments. One man would even manage to leap from one of these trains speeding towards Auschwitz, and he would ultimately tell the world his story. But to set the table, we're going to start in post-war France. 
You can subscribe to Covering Their Tracks wherever you listen to Unorthodox or go to tabletmag.com slash covering their tracks. There are two episodes out right now and the rest will be out over the next three weeks. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, it's Joshua Molina. Catherine Heather is our Gentile of the Week. She's a professor of musicology at Vanderbilt and is working on her first book, which examines sonic representations of the Holocaust. Our producers, Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller, interviewed her when she was a professor at Bowdoin when they were up in Maine for our USA story on Portland. Professor Catherine Heather, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. What is it specifically that you study? So I like to kind of refer to myself as more of a sound scholar, even though, yes, my degree is in musicology. My book project that I'm working on right now looks at how sound very, very broadly 
is employed in contemporary Holocaust memory. And this can be anywhere between, you know, a survivor's voice and how we can use our voice to emphasize specific words or how, you know, the voice changes when we're older and how that influences how the testimony is being received to a film music score. If you consider like Schindler's List and the violin theme score, how that really influences our reception of Holocaust memory in the present. If we could just jump right into the granddaddy of them all, Schindler's List. Yeah. You know, I, I am also a, a Gentile. And to a certain extent, when I think of the Holocaust, I think of that movie. And I think of particularly, you know, like the main themes from that score. And I wonder if you think there are pros and cons there to having that be like <laughs> yeah. the thing that a lot of people think of. Definitely. So what you're kind of getting at is essentially the core of my book project, how something that can represent such a dark but important part of history, how that kind of mutates and transforms and becomes just an everyday part of our culture. Like if you got on Spotify today and you searched best film scores, Schindler's List theme will be on that next to like Star Wars and Harry Potter, you know, a lot of John Williams scores. But it's kind of weird that you're having Schindler's List theme and what it represents alongside these fantastical fiction representations. So it's very much become one in everyday culture. And so I think there's a danger in that. If we're talking about popular representations of the Holocaust in a respectful way, or at least intended to be a respectful way that we see in film and in TV, there's quite a difference between that and how the Holocaust is talked about on social media. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that the Holocaust is, for lack of a better word, memed on TikTok. This also is very intimately connected to my work on film music, actually. So there's this Nazi song, maybe if as a user of TikTok, you've heard it before, called Erica. Um, it's like da 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 Erica. Um, so it's kind of like cheery, but it was written by a Nazi enthusiast and also a Nazi party member, Herms Neal. So its connection with Nazism is very clear if you break it down historically. And even if you look at the lyrics, like the ideology is there too with like blut and Bowden and like blood and soil focusing on a white child. But two years ago now, it started to become used as like a sonic meme. On TikTok, when you upload a video, you can choose from this pre-selection of, of sounds that are on TikTok. And so sometimes you'll you'll hear Erica being associated with something just very German, a Bratwurst or a German saying, genau, 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 it's a very Berlin thing, or images of like BMWs and cars. But on a much darker and scary level, it's been used to accompany images of insects being exterminated, kind of in reference to extermination of Jews during the Holocaust. What I kind of argue or show is that, you know, yes, Erica at its core, I think, is you can't really separate it from Nazi ideology and the Nazi regime. But then when you even put it over these images of like insect extermination and 8-8, it's escalating that sort of borderline anti-Semitism or what like Deborah Lipschaw refers to as anti-Semitic enabling to a whole new level. And the danger is, right, it's just on your feed and you're just zooming past everything and you're taking it in. And it normalizes it in this way because you'll see arguments on TikTok about like, chill out, it's just a song about a flower, but like it's not. Many users actually know this too, like 
for instance, the insect extermination video that I'm referencing, it was uploaded first without Erica. And then you have, you know, in the comment section, someone says, you know, re-upload with the song Erica. There was also a trend on TikTok where there was a a filter that you could apply to Mm -hmm. your face and it essentially hooks your nose and your chin that was then used to make a fair amount of anti-Semitic caricatures, often accompanied by If I Was a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof. That sort of anti-Semitism, it's not even borderline anymore. It's just, it's there. I think it's very, very obvious. Even if, you you know, it's trying to make a joke or something, like, that is anti-Semitic. And just perpetuating those awful stereotypes that, unfortunately, still very much exist in our world today, uh, but that they're not actually funny. And I think that's the danger, is that a lot of users do find them such. Or that it's so normalized that it's okay if they make a joke, like, it's not actually going to hurt anybody. But by continuing that, just continues that process of normalization. And yeah, and that's the danger. Right. I mean, it's just so insidious. I mean, it's like you were just talking about with Schindler's List is just one of many movie soundtracks on Spotify. And you're just scrolling through on TikTok and then seeing funny video, funny video, anti-Semitic video, back to funny video, blah, blah, blah. And it just becomes like, oh, this is just like anything else. I'm just taking it all in and there's so much to take in that I can't even process what is happening here. Yeah, yeah I will say it, t- like, it took me a couple of those videos before I before I kind of realized, realized because the like, first oh. I was just like, oh, Fiddler. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wait, Fiddler plus nose. <laughs> it's bad. It's yeah. bad. <laughs> I was wondering if you had anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of the way that sound works in Holocaust memory, whether it's in survivors' voices or anything related to that. Well, if you think about Holocaust survivors and their testimonies, you know, we kind of get this huge surge of them really becoming uh, very present in American consciousness in like the 80s and 90s. And at this time, you know, the survivors are probably, you know, at the youngest, like in their 40s and at the oldest, maybe in their 60s. But they still have a lot of life ahead of them and they tell their, their stories every single year. Some of the work that I did was at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and they have this program called First Person. What is really incredible about First Person is that they do have this body of survivors that come every single year and give their testimonies. So you have one particular individual, Fritz Glickstein, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but his first testimony was given in 2002, and his last one was given in 2018, and he gave it every single year. If you listen to his testimony year to year, the variances are so small, but you can hear within his voice how, you know, he is getting older. Think about your grandparents or or even your own parents. You can start to see this sort of decline in their voice or how they emphasize words or they talk a lot slower or something like that. And that in, that really impacts actually how we're receiving what they're giving us. And even in kind of initial survivor testimonies, you know, they'd be very specific about emphasizing words. Like Fritz tells the story about his father, who is a court judge in Berlin. And one day he goes in, he is asked to leave that he no longer has a job there because this is, I think, in 36. So Hitler's in power and they say to him, like, oh, there's a, a demonstration out front, so you should probably go through the back door. And Fritz retells the story, but says, and to which his father re- responds, no, I came in the front door, so I will go out the front door. And he very much emphasizes the in and the out. And that really draws the listeners into his testimony. And so I highlight this exact moment. And so his last retelling 
he still has an emphasis on it, but he moves so slowly through that retelling that it doesn't have the same kind of impact that it does with his first testimony. And while that seems very small, I compare it in, in this transition to like Holocaust holograms and VR technology. Have either of you interacted with them before or know what? Yeah. So I first heard about these Holocaust holograms when I read Daryl Horn's article in The Atlantic about the ways in which Holocaust education may or may not be succeeding in its goals. I don't know. I don't know how to feel. Can, <laughs> can you first explain what these holograms are and then we'll get into it? Yeah. Uh, so the USC Shoah Foundation has organized this use of technology where they have a selection of Holocaust survivors where they've engaged in like 27 hours plus of interviews. And these interviews took place between like 2013 and 2015. And they employ this kind of new age technology where like it literally is a hologram that like is in front of you on a stage that tells their story. And then you can ask it questions. Like you can ask them like, where did you grow up? Like very simple questions like that. And they'll respond. Or, and this is actually kind of the, one of the beautiful things about it is like you can ask them very complex questions that many people might not have felt like they could have with an actual survivor. So the first time I interacted with it, I had a, a friend in my fellowship group who asked a woman, like, "Do you, were there any instances where you were raped either in the camp or afterwards? And so she goes in this very, the survivor hologram goes in this very long statement on what actually happened to her. And that's not something you would normally get in a testimony. So that's kind of the beauty in it. But at the same time, as I noted, they were recorded between 2013 and 2015. 27 hours. And so that period of time is the only kind of voice that we get. And I mean, who they are as survivors, I mean, testimony does change. You know, your memory fails or there's an event that happens where a memory comes out. Like Fritz had never spoken about the Berlin Olympics. And then in 2008, when the Summer Olympics were, were going on, he just out of the blue in his testimony starts to tell the story about seeing Hitler in Berlin during the Olympics and how Berlin completely changed as a city. Um, so there are events that will trigger something new as well. And so one that's absent from this kind of like codified voice testimony, that's the hologram. But two, like when you go to interact with them, it is more so like a spectacle than engaging with an actual individual. And I think this is the danger in using technology because also some of what I, I do is like, I'm really interested in visitor response to these, these certain things. And some of that is one looking at like the visitor books at the end of exhibits or, or such. But I also go on Yelp and all these kind of, you know, TripAdvisor and these review places. Where people leave their real opinions. People <laughs> actually leave a lot of reviews on Holocaust museums, which is like, there's some on Auschwitz-Birkenau, but um, they will comment on like, the survivor hologram was out of this world or like it was absolutely crazy. And so, yeah, they're impressed with it, but are they impressed with the technology or are they impressed with the story? Sometimes you'll get like a room of, of students who don't really have any questions to ask. And this is also a danger because it operates on whatever you choose to ask it. So if you have a room of students that don't have any background or education in the Holocaust, what are they supposed to ask? I, I mean, I think it's a creative solution to the simple fact that one day, not too far from now, there won't be any Holocaust survivors left alive. But on the other hand, it, like, I, I'm creeped out. I'm yeah. a little bit creeped out by it. Well, and also just considering like, 
when have you come across holograms and other aspects of your life or like animatronics? Like my first interaction with animatronics is like the creepy mice from like Chuck E. Cheese or something <laughs> like, and then you get like that same kind of technology being used to represent this very, very important aspect of history. And that's like another degree of normalization is that it's supposed to depict something so serious, but that it is like virtual reality technology and such, like that's intimately connected to gaming. It's also somewhat a little bit AI, I would assume, you know, and then there's also the growing question of was the Holocaust real? More people have that question today than they did 10 years ago than they did 15 years ago. And if you have this rising question and you combine it with chat GPT can (laughs) can invent things and like we know that video can be doctored and you don't have a real person in front of you, you have a hologram. I, th- I think yeah. it can be very easy to say, oh, well, if this is all we have to believe, then like, how can that? Then how yeah. do I know? Yeah. 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 I, I, I completely agree. And it's also, yeah. So ho- the holograms, and then they do use virtual reality technology as well. So they're different applications, but both like using technology very heavily mediated. But I will say I interacted with a VR program last year when I was in Chicago. And I've been, you know, to all of the sites in in Europe. I've spent a lot of time at USHMM. I would say I kind of have like a strong stomach for, I mean, certainly there's times when I like break down, it's too much, but the sort of emotional affect that I received from doing the VR was something I'd never felt before. When I put on the VR headset, you're following this individual and his journey to Auschwitz-Birkenau and it takes you into the boxcar and I physically felt sick in a way that I've never felt at any actual site that I've been at. It was very disconcerting. And I left and like, like I said, I felt very, very sick. But that's the only thing I really remember from that is that this like feeling of nausea, of kind of like disgust, of I don't ever want to do that again. But I don't really actually remember the story of the survivor that I was supposed to be listening to. And so I think like experiential, you you have to be careful of that as like scholars and curators, because there is a degree where you want to show them like maybe what it felt like to an extent, but to have that be completely like the one thing that's taken away, I think that's also the danger of, of this technology as well. Right. I mean, it's really, it's it's the question of like, do you want to make people feel or do you want to make people think? Right. Feeling something and feeling like you're there, that can be really, really powerful. But at the same time, like, is it just a lateral move between like, oh, okay, I'm going to see these holograms and think, wow, that was a cool technology. Right. I'm going to be in this VR and be like, wow, that was a harrowing thing to see for a few minutes. Or yeah, I'm actually going to have a deeper engagement with what this event meant for a group of people, meant for world history, meant for everybody. I think there needs to be a balance between the two, between thinking and feeling. But that balance is very hard to get perfect. And that if you have one over the, over the other, a lot is lost. An opportunity that we give all of our Gentiles of the week is we give them the chance to ask any question about Judaism that they might have, small, (laughs) large, to an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts, which is not us. (laughs) It is our bosses, but today we are their emissaries. Today you have me and Quinn. (laughs) Do you have any question that we can answer for you? Can I ask two? Sure. I just remember my parents like playing a lot of Christian like country music. (laughs) So I guess like if there's any kind of Jewish religious music that's connected to practicing that's more secularized in the home. And then this is a more Holocaust related question because I've had several professors actually tell me that this happened from their childhood where like 
when they got in trouble, their mom would make them like sit down and like read night or or read another Holocaust testimony. And I guess my thought is like, was that just a couple of my professors who had unfortunate disciplining habits from their parents? Or is that actually a thing that happened on a, gr- a larger scale? As far as musical tradition goes, there's sort of a core set of prayers. And, you know, there are some Jewish communities that have some prayers, some Jewish communities that have others. There's a fair amount of prayers that are common amongst most Jewish communities. And sometimes they have the same melody, but a lot of the time the melodies change depending on the ethnic background. Like the Nagoon and, and yeah. Like the Nagoon, yeah. My synagogue has a couple different melodies that they'll cycle through for Lechadodi, which is a song that welcomes Shabbat. And I definitely have preferences cool. <laughs> for which I prefer. They did it to the tune of uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Cool. once. And it, and it worked. I will say it was not my fave. Um, <laughs> so I think there's, at least in the communities that I'm in, an effort to span the bridge of tradition and, and kind of engage. and modernity and engaging people. Did you ever hear the like Kaddish to Adele's Hello? No. I'll I'll email it to you after this. In terms of being forced to read Holocaust testimony (laughs) as a punishment. (laughs) Yeah, sure. um, I cannot say that I've ever heard of this. (laughs) We will ask around and get back to you. Catherine Heather, thank you so much for coming on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. This is great. of Beautifully Jewish were planted one year ago when Tanya Singer and I put together the first ever unorthodox episode dedicated to Holocaust remembrance. You might remember me falling in love with Rachi Schnee's deeply personal line of mazel jewelry and a conversation I had with my mom about my survivor grandparents' incredible love of life and the way they would take any opportunity to celebrate. Tanya's cousins Sam and Eva shared their story and dreams of freedom and the music that helped give them hope along the way. We realized then that love and memory and history are deeply intertwined with things. The things that help us remember, the things that tell our stories, the things that make our history tangible. Beautifully Jewish was created to celebrate the objects that inspire us and connect us to our Jewish identities and the people who make those objects and make them meaningful, from crafters to artisans, even our kids and grandkids in Hebrew school. Beautifully Jewish is created with support from Lion Brand Yarns. And today, our story brings us to Skokie, Illinois, where Tanya Singer and I recently saw a treasured handmade heirloom that traveled from Shanghai to San Francisco, and finally to Skokie. Here's Tanya Singer with the story of the little red dress. You may remember Skokie from your high school history class or from the Blues Brothers. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. It's a suburb of Chicago that, in the 70s, was more than half Jewish, with perhaps the largest community of Holocaust survivors outside of Israel. The National Socialist Party of America made them a target. They wanted to march in Skokie. The town's residents fought them all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled on the side of the Nazis and free speech. Party leader Frank Collin says he's so pleased he's inviting Nazis from all over the United States hold a demonstration at Skokie on the 4th of July. Long story short, they never marched in Skokie. But 
that the controversy activated Skokie's Jewish community. Illinois became the first state to mandate Holocaust education. And when the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center was built, it was in Skokie, not Chicago. Because this community of Holocaust survivors were transformed into advocates and educators, and they couldn't imagine the museum anywhere else. We're here today at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center with one of the people who make this community so special, Judy Fleischer Kolb. So as you see, that's my knitted dress that my grandmother made. It's amazing the shape it's in after all the places it's been. You've walked by this dress a lot since the museum opened. Do you get that feeling every time? Absolutely. Where does it bring you to when you see that dress? It brings me to my family. The dress brings back family memories. The teeny tiny knitted red dress really is a sight to see. When people walk in, they see the red. So I think that is a big part of it, for me anyway. What I see is like a very tiny little bodice that's all just plain knit stitch. There are um, wooden or maybe bone buttons down the back that would make it easy to slip this over a baby's head. And then there's a very full skirt. It's a big sort of wide, fun party dress. It feels like a party dress. It's just beautifully knit. Yeah. I'm looking at this picture of you from, it says 1940 wearing this dress. You look adorable in this dress, we should say. It's a black and white photo, so we don't get the full red. But you can see that this is, this is a beautiful dress. And you're sitting happily in your mother's lap. She's smiling. Right, right. Yeah, all the pictures I have from Shanghai, we're all smiling. At least the part of the family that made it to Shanghai was very happy to all gather together. As you just heard from Judy, This little red dress hanging in the Illinois Holocaust Museum was knit across the Pacific Ocean in Shanghai. So let's talk about how the dress got here. The story starts before Judy was born, but she's heard it plenty of times. This is a picture of my grandfather in his uniform during World War I. They were all very proud Germans. And these are all the passports. And as you see, the big J on them. Her family lived in a German resort town on the Baltic Sea. Her grandmother, Martha, ran a fabric store with her husband, Judy's grandfather, the veteran. The day after Kristallnacht, Judy's grandfather was arrested for being a Jew. My grandmother knew they would have to leave Germany. It was no longer safe. So word of mouth, she found out you could go to Shanghai where you didn't need passport, you didn't need an affidavit, you didn't need anything. It was just someplace safe to go. There was no country, no country in the world that was letting you in, but Shanghai was an open port. It had never been closed. Shanghai was one of the last open ports in the world in 1938. The only way to get there was on a luxury liner, making passage pricey. Martha, with her husband detained, took action. She sold everything she could from the fabric store, raising enough money to buy five tickets and got exit papers from the mayor's office. Then she went to Gestapo headquarters, showed them that we were leaving in 38. If you could prove you were leaving, they would let you go. So she showed them the papers. They let my grandfather out of the prison or wherever he was at the time in one of the concentration camps. And then my parents got married, and you once you were leaving, you had to leave within a week or two. The Nazis put a limit on how much they could take with them. 
rendering them stateless and essentially penniless. You were not allowed to bring anything of value. You were able to take some trunks, whatever you could fit into that. So they took, I don't know, maybe a few furnishings. The Gestapo inspected the trunks. And my uncle later on told me that my grandmother did hide some jewelry in the trunk. So he was pretty nervous when that was inspected, but they didn't find anything. And that's how they left with very little. They landed in Shanghai after a four-week journey. Judy was born nine months later. The family lived like so many refugees, crammed into a tiny apartment. Everything was so crowded. You know, within that building that should have held maybe 10 people, there were probably 40 people living. German and Austrian refugees crowded into the city, some in the ghetto and others just beyond. By 1941, the Japanese took over and herded upwards of 20,000 Jewish refugees into the Hanku ghetto, just one square mile. So we had three rooms. There was a little kitchen. There was a small bedroom for my parents. Then I slept in the room that was a little larger. I slept with my grandmother. (laughs) There was someone climbing in the window one night wanting to steal something, and she got up with her stick, and he ran out before he got anything. (laughs) Judy's grandparents ran Star Transportation, a fleet of hand-pulled carts delivering goods. Their office? The bedroom they shared with little Judy. My grandmother would take a stick and run alongside of this little contraption because the Chinese kids used to like to slit the rice bags to see the rice fall all over the place. She was out there in case that happened. Running alongside the Yes. Between protecting the hand carts and her family, Judy's grandmother Martha, whom she called Omi, also found the time to knit Judy a tiny red dress. Judy was too little to remember ever wearing it. But there's that picture of her hanging in the museum, sitting on her mother's lap in 1940, happily wearing the dress. It was part of how her family tried to give her a normal life, despite the strangeness and stresses of their circumstances. I'm a young kid who's just running around having a loving family. I never saw them in distress. My father tried very hard then to get his parents out of Germany, you know, writing letters to distant relatives, organizations in the United States got a lot of letters from my grandmother. But then in 1942, the letters just stopped. So they were sent to Auschwitz, his parents and his sister. I never saw my father in distress. I never picked up on it, certainly not from my grandmother. So I was just a very, very happy child. I had my parents, I had my grandparents, I had my uncle. So life was normal for me. The first time I was in distress and scared was when they told me I was leaving Shanghai. I couldn't understand why, why are we leaving Shanghai? After the end of the war, Judy's family hoped to leave Shanghai. After three years of trying to immigrate to the U.S., they finally got a visa. Their first stop was in California. 568 29th Avenue in San Francisco. 
that's really where my life took off again. My grandparents and my mom get hired by Levi Strauss, who tried to help a lot of refugees by employing them. The family uprooted again a few years later, when Judy's father got a job in Chicago. Of course, the dress came along, too. Obviously, I didn't see the dress very much. I grew out of it almost immediately, but that dress traveled through all the different apartments we lived in, the homes we lived in, so it's, it's been on a journey. Almost 70 years after the dress was knit, Judy offered it to the museum here in Skokie. She never expected much would happen with it. When I first came in, I was shocked. The dress was in my closet for years. I almost gave it to my daughter to put on her dolls, and I thought, maybe that's not a good idea. And my granddaughter, she was actually the first one to see that picture, and she knew what my mom looked like, so. Love the idea of your granddaughter coming in, spotting the photo of you in the dress, and then you round the corner. I know, I had no idea what to expect, and she looked at that, I was amazed. This is really like a wall of life. This is this is yeah, like even in terrible circumstances in the ghetto right, in Shanghai. Right. This is like a tribute to Jewish resilience. This yeah. whole wall is like right. strangers in a strange land getting married, having babies, oh, knitting beautiful exactly. dresses. So we've come full circle. Judy's grandmother knit a dress in Shanghai that Judy's granddaughter was the first to see preserved at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. But the dress's journey, and our own, weren't over. Our next stop was Emma's Bagel Cafe, a bustling kosher bagel spot in Skokie. Can I get a small decaf and a cheese danish? We were there to meet Faye Levinson, a docent at the museum. Okay, I'm Faye Levinson. I do knitting and crochet needlepoint, the knitting I learned from my survivor mother. I am a docent, I am a second-generation speaker, and I'm getting a master's in Holocaust study. Um, Second-generation, not a Holocaust survivor. I don't like that term, second-generation Holocaust survivor, because I'm not a survivor. So one of the books I read, he refers to himself and others as second-generation witness, and I like that better. Faye's identity as a witness to history and a crafter are intertwined. So it's no surprise Judy's red dress caught her attention. In fact, when the museum was looking to upgrade the educational trunks it sends to school groups who can't make the trip to Skokie, Faye had an idea. So they will send out a trunk with so-called artifacts. They didn't have a a little red dress. They had a uh, cardboard cutout of the little red dress. So they asked for volunteers, either knit or crochet, and they gave you a pattern to knit a little red dress. No knitter would let a museum send a cardboard cutout to children who might just have one lesson on the Holocaust. Why make do with a poor two-dimensional imitation when you could have something like the real thing? Faye knit a dress like the museum requested, but she also called her brother-in-law Jack Blumenthal of Lion Brand Yarn. So since I have family in the knitting business, I called them up, will you send some yarn? He said, absolutely. So we got a whole bunch of knitters to knit the little red dress that goes into the trunk that is sent out to uh, the schools that, for whatever reason, usually because they're too far, 
can't make it to the museum. So, thanks to Faye and an army of knitters, students across the Midwest can see and touch a handmade little red dress just like Judy's. Faye sees her work at the museum as part of a broader mission, telling her family's story. What has been the most meaningful thing about getting involved with this museum for you? This is, for me, a way of not just remembering my parents, but being able to tell their story. So where were you born, Faye? In the DP camp in Salzheim. That's where my parents met and married, and I was born. But this picture I'm going to show you is three years after the DP camp. This is an amazing... It's an amazing picture. Okay, so tell us who's in this photo. My parents, Perla and... Well, at the time he was Gershon, then he became George, but Perla and Gershon Grunbart. Faye's parents didn't talk much about the Holocaust growing up. She heard bits and pieces about the camps and about the DP camp where she was an infant. She knows the streets in Zaltzheim were named after cities in Kibbutzim in Israel and that her mom was a knitter. And she's picked up a few things over the years, like when she met some people at a wedding that said they remembered Perla and Gershon. What they remembered the most was that I had the most beautiful baby carriage in all of Tzaltzheim because of the way my mother decorated it. And so she made something really special for you in a place that was not at all filled with adornment but, or... But not only that, there was little money and even... If you had some money, very little to buy. So I don't know how they managed my parents somehow. They were resourceful enough to find these items to decorate my baby carriage. We asked Faye if there was a Jewish element to all of this. Well, it's Jewish survival. So many survivors, they didn't know if they'd be able to have children. We were all miracle children in our parents' eyes. Their bodies went through so much torture. For so long, they, they weren't nourished at all. We were all considered miracle children. And in that like post-war, post-liberation haze, the idea of new children, new Jewish children, I mean, that's so that meaningful. Was, that was the largest population growth ever was in the DP camps. This idea, making something beautiful for your miracle children, these children who represented some kind of Jewish future amongst death and loss, we found that really moving. Sometimes that thing was a baby carriage, and sometimes it was a little red dress knit after a long day of protecting a flatbed full of rice. Which brings us back to Judy. And here's where I should probably say that I have something to do with the red dress story too. In 2021, I wrote about Judy's story and published a pattern for a little red dress, which led to a knit-along, which then led to an event at this very museum, where all those dresses we knit were donated. And on the stage in the auditorium, on the hangers, were all these little red dresses. I don't have a picture of that. I do. You yeah. have to send me that. It was amazing. It was really striking. Judy and her original dress, though, they were the stars. There was an audience here. And I told my story, and so did Faye. This journey of just meeting so many people since I've been in this museum has been incredible. So there's a lot of red dresses out there. <laughs> if you could call your Omi right now, what would you tell her? <laughs> you make me cry. <laughs> 
She was just wonderful. She kept the family together. Whatever the family needed, she was there. It made it happen. Yeah, she was amazing. What do you hope to say to like young people today when you give a tour or what do you want people to know? The tours coming through are mostly seventh graders. And because my story is a survival story and a story where I felt good all my life, I didn't go through any horrors. I make the emphasis of people that you associate with. And instead of idolizing some movie star or some pop singer, look around to your family and who are your idols and heroes, which I definitely had. I think the Holocaust story has to be told, absolutely has to be told. But I'm really proud of this museum because it's an education center. They then take it a step further. The kids are taught, well, what can you do to make this world? Doesn't have to be magnificent things, little gestures. What can you do to make this world better for all of us, except everyone? So that's a real mission. Small gestures. It's something that applies not just to kids, but to all of us. And Judy had just one more story to tell us. So I saw that my temple's Hebrew school class or Sunday school class was coming in. So I timed it when they would be by my, by my dress. So I walked down there and told them to the kids and the teachers, that's actually my dress. And their mouths just fell open. They were so shocked. There's a human being here who wore that dress. The teacher the next time asked me to do it since that worked so well the first time. So I've done that a, a couple of times. And I do have to point out, you are wearing a beautiful red jacket <laughs> as the, the red dress lady. Yes, I, I don't do it all the time, but I felt this was an opportunity to wear a red jacket. <laughs> Thank you. It's not lost on us. Thank you. <laughs> This episode of Beautifully Jewish was created with support from Lion Brand Yarns, a fifth-generation family-owned business. Lion Brand Yarns are sold online at national craft chains, mass market, and independent shops across the United States. Lion Brand Yarns is passionate about helping people enjoy the pleasures of working with yarn and committed to creating a more colorful, connected, comforting, and caring world. We hope you'll become part of our community of crafters here at Beautifully Jewish. Go to tabletmag.com slash beautifullyjewish to catch up on past segments of the podcast and follow links to become a member and join us for future crafting projects. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Risquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger, our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook, and our theme music is by Golem. Email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends.